Well, we're working our way through the book of Ephesians. If you've been with us, you know that. If you don't, uh, we're going to begin chapter 5 today. So I'm going to ask you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. The title of the message is Being Like God, the Ultimate Sign of Love. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5 to kind of give you the, uh, the thought of this passage. We won't look at the whole thing today, but we'll look at a couple verses today, and we'll get the rest of it next week. But let me read it so it's in your mind. And we'll begin to break it down. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Father, we pray now that our hearts would hear what you have to say, gracious Father, to each one of us that is yours, to every believer here today, to grasp and understand the depth of your everlasting love, and they were simply called to reflect that love. And I pray that we'll have a true understanding of what biblical love is, Lord, rather than a misconception of just emotional feel-goodism, Lord. Guide us now that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of your Son through the revealed words of Scripture. And that for those who perhaps don't know you today would be broken in spirit, understanding by your spirit, that they don't know you and that they come to saving faith in you through the sound teaching of your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, verses 1 through 7 that we just read touch on the very heart of the Christian life, and that is the subject of love. What love looks like for the believer and what it does not look like for the believer. And in verse 2, what do we see? We're commanded to walk in what? In love. Now, we've learned and come to understand through this study from Ephesians 4 on now up to this point that the word walk means simply daily conduct. My life as a believer, day by day. My daily walk, my daily life, my lifestyle. Now, as we've been making our way through Ephesians, we see the same lesson over and over again. Live out what you are. Live out who you are, because it's all the time that we spent in chapters 1 through, 1 through 3, we came to understand our position in Christ, our right standing in Christ, because we're in Christ. You are as righteous as you can be. And Paul goes on from chapter 4 now to the, through the rest of the book, walk out who you are. You are righteous, therefore live righteously. Great security is in that. Brothers and sisters, for those of you that are Christians, there is great security in knowing what chapters 1 through 3 divine for us, that you're as righteous as you'll ever be in the eyes of God. 
And again, we've learned that that is positional righteousness. That's unchanging, unwavering. And he says, look, I, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you, live this out. Be who you are. Be what you are. And because these studies have kind of lined up like this, if this is not calculated by me, okay? We are simply seeing this as we walk our way through Scripture, verse by verse. And we, we realize and we see that, you know, unless someone who pref professes Christ, unless a believer's life now manifests righteous character, which is absolutely distinct from the world, there's a great possibility that that individual is not saved. That's very important to note because so many profess Christ today. Very important to note. Look at verse 6. Paul says, let no one deceive you with what? Empty words. There are many today who will preach. It doesn't matter how you live. You just say this prayer and write it in your Bible that you're saved. As long as you said the prayer, you're in. That is not biblical. Unless one's life manifests the characteristics of Christ living in you, there's great reason to doubt that one truly knows this God that they so boldly profess. Very important. Paul uses the word deceived here, which shows us that there are people who are deceived. He says, let no one deceive you in that by living a lifestyle like this, as defined in verse 5, fornicators, unclean people, covetous, idolaters, that they have an inheritance of the kingdom. Don't let people deceive you with words of comfort if you live like that, is what he's saying. Now, as we learned last week, true Christian character is not characterized by the counterfeit. That kind of assurance is counterfeit assurance. What is characterized by is love. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. Love removes or replaces all of these things in verse 31. It replaces bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. Clamor is an just uh, outburst of rage in public. Don't care who's watching, don't care who's listening. I heard that from my neighbors last night. I thought a woman was getting attacked and, oh my goodness. She was just ranting and raving with her boyfriend. Evil speaking, let it be put away from you with all malice. Malice is a general term for evil, all kinds of evil. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And we'll look at that in depth here in a minute. See, all this old corrupt self, all of that which we were, defined as we just read, that's who we were. He says, look, don't pick up that garbage and cloak yourself in that anymore. Throw it off, put it away and walk in the righteous robe that is provided by Christ. Put it off. Put it away from you. It says put off anger and wrath and let it be re replaced by kindness. Now the question is, we looked last week a bit, the question will rise whether all wrath and anger should be replaced by kindness. Remember that? Now, definitely bitterness must be replaced with kindness and tenderheartedness. Definitely outbreaks of clamoring, definitely all belligerence, definitely all rumor milling, definitely all evil speaking, definitely all malice. No exceptions, they all must be put off. But what about all anger? Or what kind of anger? Verse 26 says, be angry and do not sin. James chapter 1 verse 19 says, be slow to anger. You know, Mark chapter 3 says that Jesus looked at the Pharisees with anger, whatever that looked like. 
You know, was it kind for Jesus to say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs? Was that kind? Was it kind when Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you cross land and sea and make one simple, simple convert, and when that man becomes your convert, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves? Are those kind words? Was it kindness when Jesus made a whip of cords? Chased out the animals, turned over the tables in the temple. John Piper talks about this a little bit. And he says, you know, if you walked up to Jesus after he'd done these things and he said, Jesus, that was not very kind for you to say that to the Pharisees. Piper says Jesus would have probably responded with one of two things. He said, number one, sometimes a heart of love and a passion for the truth don't express themselves in the form of kindness. Or, there is a sort of kindness that can be hard as nails and tough as leather. Truth is hard to take sometimes, amen? So, the question would be this. Is your anger, is my anger, a selfish anger? Or a righteous anger? And we had these questions last week. We said, we asked, do the things that anger God anger you? When His holiness is assaulted, are you assaulted? When God is misrepresented, are you angered? How about this one? When you sin, are you angered to the point of repentance? Right? The sin in me angers me. Paul says, oh, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I don't want to do, those things I end up doing, the things I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do those things. Come on now. Psalm 97.10 says, you that love the Lord hate evil. You that love the Lord hate evil. Psalm 69.9, David says, zeal for your house, Lord, has eaten me up. And when Jesus flipped the temple upside down, the, the passage that came to their minds was zeal for your house has eaten me up. They remembered it when Jesus turned it upside down. Or, you know, do you get angry for the things that God gets angry for? Or do you let the, sound, the sun go down on your anger when someone wrongs you? You hold bitterness against them, resentment, a burning ember of resentment within because someone has been unkind to you. When we do, and if you do, Ephesians 4.27 says that we give place to the devil. We give place to the devil. He'll have a foothold in your life if you do. Unresolved anger gives peace. Check this out. Unresolved anger gives peace and a place for Satan in your life. Okay, I'm not talking about a physical place. I'm not talking about a Christian being possessed. I'm not talking about a Christian being demonized. Those concepts are absolutely unbiblical. What I'm talking about is what 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, that Satan will have an advantage over you. Yes, you can be a Christian. Yes, you can be saved by the grace and by the blood of Christ, but he can have a foothold in your life because you or I choose to hold on to unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment within our hearts for another brother, another sister, you see? Now, in verses 1 through 7, we see four points. Four points that are made. Paul makes four points. Number one is that there is an appeal that is made. 
Number two, in an example that is given. Those are in your bulletin. The third is a perversion that is to be forsaken. And number four, a penalty to the unrepentant. And at the very end, there's a warning there. There's a word of warning. So today's study will enable you to test to see how mature you are in Christ. How mature are you in Christ? Today's study will define that for you. So today we'll look at the first two points, an appeal made and an example given. And then that takes us to verse 1. Verse 1, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as what? As dear children. Now, therefore takes us back, doesn't it? We've seen a lot of therefores from chapter 4 to this point, right? Therefore takes us back. Now, when you teach the Bible, you have to deal with the paragraph before, the paragraph after, and then the paragraph before the one before, you see? Because it all ties together. Each book of the Bible ties together. A lot of times guys will take a bunch of verses, they get this brilliant five-point scheme or five-point series they want to have, and they get all their ideas down on paper, and they look at how creative they're going to be, and then they go pluck a bunch of text out of, con a bunch of, text out of context, and they just teach, and then you've got a bunch of stuff that is totally out of context, and it doesn't tie together like it's supposed to tie together. It's very important. One thing that God does not apologize for through the scriptures is saying the same thing over and over and over again. Did you notice that? Therefore, because God doesn't apologize for it, when we get to things that repeat themselves, I won't apologize for it, nor anyone that teaches in this church will they apologize for it either. Okay? Because here's the thing, guys. Please don't ever think... And this keeps us in a place of humility. Please don't ever think that because you understand something intellectually, that you understand a certain biblical concept, that you understand a certain biblical teaching or a certain biblical doctrine, that you know it. Because if that concept, that idea, or that truth is not operative in your life now, you don't know it. Therefore... You must listen much more attentively as to how you're going to apply that to your life. That's all of us. We all must know that. Because what you believe the truth to be, believer, is how you will live your life. It's how you will desire to live your life. You will desire to live your life as to the truth that God has revealed through the scriptures. So in verse 31 of chapter 4, what does he say? Put away bitterness, put away wrath, put away anger, put away clamor, put away evil speaking. All of which the, are, are the opposite of verse 32, which is love. Love. Here we see the characteristics of love. Verse 32, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, which means like a moving of the bowels. Is where that word comes from, a moving of the bowels. You're easily touched or moved by others' hurts or pains. And next, forgiving one another. See, forgiveness is the key here, guys. This is a character trait that must be obeyed. It's a command. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. It's a command. So you go, oh, my goodness, how do I do this if I'm not feeling it? Because most of the time I'm not, quote-unquote, feeling it, right? Can I get some agreement there? Yeah. So how do I do this? Well, the answer always comes as a reminder. Look at verse 31 of chapter 4. 
It, it, we see it in the verb here. Let all bitterness, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be what? Put away, or here it is, taken away from you. Let it be taken away, Christian. Let it be put away from you, Christian. Because you don't have to do it in your strength because you can't. We understand that? You don't have to because you can't. Think back with me, if you will, or look back with chapter 3, verse 16. See if, see if this brings anything to your memory. Chapter 3, verse 16. The whole family in heaven and earth is named, right? That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through what? His spirit in the inner man. So that, or here, this is a purpose clause, verse 17, that says, in order that, in other words, 16 has to happen before 17 can. So, you strengthen with might through the Spirit and the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we looked at that deeply weeks and weeks ago. We'll say, well, doesn't Christ already dwell in me? If verse 16 says, be strengthened with might through His Spirit, Holy Spirit in order that Christ may dwell in me, doesn't He dwell in me? If I have the Spirit, don't I have Christ? Now, when we looked at that, what it means is, yes, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. But when the inner man is strengthened, and we get focused on what's going on inside, instead of just outside, because we can look holy like the Pharisees on the outside, amen? God's concerned about what's going on the inside, what's going on in our thinking. Bitterness, resentment, those unseen things is what's brewing on the inside. And eventually they manifest themselves outside. He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit will not strengthen the inner man unless you yield to him, first of all. And then once I yield to the Holy Spirit in me and focus on the inner man, then verse 17 happens. Christ, the word dwell means to settle down and be at home. Christ may be in you, but he's not in home, at home in you. It's like living in a mess. You live in your house, you go home to your house today, it can be just a shambles and a wreck. But you don't feel at home because it's a mess, right? If my inner man is a mess, Christ can't settle down and be at home in me. So the strength and the only strength that you will ever have to be able to put off or have them taken away, these ugly things, is to be yielded to the Spirit and allow Him to do it as you yield to Him. You see? Are you with me? That's how we put it off. That's how we put it away. That's how we're, we, we enable God to take it away. We allow Him to do it as we yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit. Let it be taken away. It's only then that we can do chapter 5, verse 1, be an imitator of God. That's how we become an imitator of God. Imitators or followers of God. Imitator. Minitize, where we get the word mimic. It means to copy certain, certain characteristics. You, you could sum up the whole Christian life in that verse. Therefore, be imitators or followers of God, right? Now, because the Spirit's in you, He is reproducing in us all that is in God, right? Christ is doing a work in you to conform you to the image of Himself. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. To, to make you and I more like Christ as we yield more of ourselves to Him. Listen to what the Scripture says. What we're supposed to be. 
First Peter 1.15 says, And he who called you is holy, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Matthew 5.48, Jesus said, You shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, here's one that really disturbs me. 1 John 4.8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. How? All the scripture is nothing but a self-disclosure of God, and it's the revelation of God himself through the scriptures. Period. So you say, be like God, Christian or not Christian, that's impossible, right? And if you say that's impossible, you're in a really good spot. You can be encouraged with that. Because it is. But Jesus, the reality in which he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, he opens up the first recorded teaching words out of his mouth are, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are the people who come knowing that they're morally bankrupt and they can't be like God. Blessed are those, for theirs is the kingdom. Being like God begins with understanding that you can't be like God. And when you realize you can't be like God, you fall at his feet and you mourn over your sin, the second beatitude, because you see your sin as God sees your sin. And you realize, I can't meet that standard, you see. That's ultimate humility. And ultimate humility is the place in which spiritual life is birthed into the believer supernaturally by the work of God himself. Comforting, isn't it? It's always in the midst of brokenness that you begin to depend upon the power of God and not the power of yourself. Submission and yieldedness. And that's Paul's appeal. We see the appeal. Be imitators of God. To imitate God is to imitate, here it is, to imitate his love. You want to imitate God? You imitate his love. Now, children naturally imitate their parents, right? You guys ever remember when your kids, when your dad would mow the lawn and you had the little plastic lawnmower? Remember those little things? And you would push them in the wheel and go, remember that? I used to follow my dad around in the lawnmower doing that. Just whatever path he was on, I would follow him. You know, being like your parents can be good or bad because kids imitate what they see and what they hear, right? Remember when I was a little kid, all the adults I knew smoked cigarettes back in the 60s, 70s. So what we kids would do is get those little candy cigarettes. They were made, I don't know what, the, it looked like chalk. And if you blew on them hard enough, because of all the sugar that was in it, a little puff would come out. So we would go, and then we go. All we were doing was imitating what we saw, you know? We were imitating what was very familiar to us. Here it is, guys. Here's where we really get into the study. If we're going to really imitate God in his love, the greatest act of love that God has ever revealed to man is forgiveness. The greatest act of love that God has ever revealed of himself is that of forgiveness. Forgiveness. You want to measure your love? You have to measure it by the amount of forgiveness that you have inside for your brothers and your sisters. Inside. That's the only way to measure the amount of love that you have. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. 
The therefore is there to take us back to 32. We just looked at that. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. You're an imitator of God by the amount of forgiveness that you have inside for those that have wronged you, for those that have said evil against you, for those that have been unkind to you. The only way to measure Christ-like love, the ultimate way to measure. Now, the context here is what? Forgiving who? Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Who's the one another, believers or non-believers? This is the family of God. We've been learning this all through Ephesians. We're called to forgive one another because you will eventually wrong one another. I'll eventually, not wanting to, probably wrong you or disappoint you or something. And it's up to us to not allow the unforgiveness to root itself, to cause bitterness and resentment, which leads to hatred, anger, wrath, and malice. It's all connected now. Forgiveness. How do you know if you don't love like this? How do I know if I'm not loving like this? Well, ask yourself the question. Do you have bitterness against somebody right now for something that they did to you? Do you speak maliciously about someone because they've wronged you? Do you verbally assault people behind their back? Do you gossip about people behind their back because they've wronged you? That's a good test. That's where we got to start, you see. Because we got to deal with the inner man, amen? Forgiving one another. This is the believing community. If someone in the believing community sins against you, guess what? That sin was paid for at the cross. If someone, a brother or sister, sins against you, their sin was paid for. So who are you to add to the payment, right? Who are you, who am I, to hold resentment, bitterness, wrath against someone which is a product of unforgiveness against that person when all that Christ has done was paid for at Calvary. Who are we to add to it? Right? Forgiving one another. We've got to start there. You say you love Christ. You say you want to love like Christ. You think you love like Christ. Look at your heart. I spend a lot of times in the Scripture. Don't, don't think I don't wrestle with all this stuff. If, if you think that I think I'm all that, you're wrong. Because I spend way more time in the scriptures probably than most of you. Because I have to bring it to you. And I love to do that. Don't think the Holy Spirit doesn't just rattle my cage day after day after day. Come on. If someone in the Christian community sinned against you, and you think that they're undeserving of your sin, you don't, just remember you don't deserve Christ's forgiveness. Or that they're undeserving of your forgiveness, rather. Right? If that's the case, stop and remember that Jesus bore the sin on the cross on their behalf. He bore all of your sin just like he bore all of their sin. And remember that if you hold resentment. It's paid for. You and I do not need to seek further payment. You see? We, we have no need to seek further payment for the sins against us from one another. And that's why I open up. Man, do the things of God anger you? When God's misrepresented, do those things anger you as much as when you're personally reviled? When Jesus was reviled, he reviled not in return. But when his father was misrepresented, or the people that were coming to the temple to worship God were being misled, he turned the place upside down. Now, come on. It's paid for. 
So now you may ask, well, what about the non-believers that have sinned against me? Now, I know I need to forgive my brothers and sisters because their sin was paid for, right? What about my uncle who hurt me as a child? What about these people who have wronged me in such malicious ways? And as a matter of fact, on top of that, they even say they hate God. Now, that, now it gets tough, right? It gets tough. But you've got to think about this. All sin ultimately will be paid for. Did you know that? Now, if a Christian sins against you, that, that sin was paid for at Calvary. It was paid for on the cross. If they're a non-believer, it will be paid for on the last day. Romans 12:19 says this. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, let him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, there's no need for us to add to the suffering of the consequence, right? It only makes you and more others more miserable. If you have unforgiveness in you, bitterness, that bitter root that, that just smolders, and it ignites when someone wrongs you, if that isn't dealt with, it'll destroy you. It'll destroy you. It'll totally misrepresent God. Don't add to the suffering of the consequence. Gotta let it go. To love like Christ is to forgive like Christ. To love like Christ is to forgive the greatest evil against you, you see? Impossible in your own strength now, amen? Impossible in your own strength. That inner man must be strengthened. Christ settles down, he's at home, we begin to see, we begin to feel, we begin to act, we begin to react as Christ who has settled down at home in us. It's the only way. It's the only way. Not to be mistaken, by the way, to allow evil to take place if you have the opportunity to stop it. Right? James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, I don't think any man who's a man would walk down the street and see or hear a woman getting attacked in an alley somewhere would just walk by and go, oh, God will get him in the last day. <laughs> you need to be a man. Be a man, mate. And if it means you have to go in there and break that thing apart and you have to bust a couple teeth in the process to get him off the woman who he's inflicting evil upon, Stop it. But to know to do good and not to do it becomes an evil in and of itself, you see? So don't mistake it for not doing something when you know you're supposed to. Now, we all offend to God, right? You, you, I'm talking to believers here. Do you offend God still on your daily conduct? Yeah, well, I do too. And that's why we're here, amen? It's the Lord's Day. Lord's Day, we gather together to be edified in the Word so that we, we can walk out changed, more like Christ. But one thing I do is I praise God that he doesn't say when I do wrong him that, oh, that was the last straw. I've had it with you. I'm pulling the rug out from underneath you. I'm pulling the rug out from underneath this ministry that I called you to anyway. You're done, leader. It's over. Right? Praise God. Amen? That's grace. That's grace. Because he says this, my son took the wrath. My son took the pain. My son was afflicted on your behalf, John Leader. You see? 
And when you realize that as a believer, hopefully it gives you, it, it produces what we're supposed to have, tenderheartedness, which crushes you over the sin that you've allowed yourself to inflict towards God. Because ultimately we sin against God, you see? 1 John 2.12 says, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you. For his name's sake. Colossians 2.13, you he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. You see? 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So who are you to demand blood out of somebody else? Amen? If he... Is forgiven you by the blood of his son. Who are you? Who am I to demand blood out of somebody else, right? Because we'll say, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Just remember, we don't deserve his. Amen? You want to love like Christ? You have to love with the love of forgiveness that he had for you. Now, another thing is not supposed to be confused here is this does not preclude the discipline of a sinning, unrepentant church member. Church discipline, right? Okay, this does not mean you don't inflict church discipline. If someone sins against you, you go to that brother or sister one-on-one. -on -one. If they're not repentant, you take two or three. If they're unrepentant and they keep fellowshipping, you call them out before the church. It's very important. Who's ever been writing the sick, perverted things they've been dumping in this box? If that's revealed, we're going to go to them. They're going to have the opportunity to repent. And if they don't, I'm going to bring two or three leaders to that person as well. If they're unwilling to repent and they don't show signs of repentance, we will point them out. I don't care if they're sitting in the front row. I'll point them out to you. That's what church discipline is. Matthew 18 is really clear. So love still confronts sin because love covers sins also, you see. Love covers a multitude of sin. It means to throw a blanket over it. That means you just don't push it off the side and ignore it, though. Your love for another who sins against you Love covers a multitude of sins, and your love cast out upon that person covers the sin as it was inflicted to you, and you no longer hold on to it. Love covers a multitude of sins. You know that church is filled with former thieves, thugs, fornicators, homosexuals, liars, covetous, right? We're all out of that club. You get it? Huh, Bobby? Come on now. I've served with them all over the years. Every category I just defined for you, I've served with them all. I've had those living in my home that came to faith, not before they came to Christ. And I don't want them around. Once they came to faith in Christ, we have discipled those people in-house at my home over the years. And you know one thing I've realized over the years? and ministering with people and alongside people who come out of those types of lifestyles, they understand how much they've been forgiven. And when you understand how much you've been forgiven, you know what you do in return? You love much. And you know what it is to love much? Here it is. It's to forgive much. In our house, you know, our kids could tell you over the years, We've had ex-cons, ex-druggies, ex-pornography promoters for Hustler Magazine, the greedy, the liars. You can fill in the blank. And our kids have been so gracious to give up their rooms over the years, which was amazing to me. And we've discipled people through the process, but 
one thing I realized is that they understood God's forgiveness and they forgave and they were forgiving, quick to forgive people because they realized they were forgiven so much, you see. You know who it is who has a hard time forgiving? Usually the smug, the self-righteous, people who can't seem to forgive when they're wronged, right? You know, I've been going to church all my life. And we don't need this kind of riffraff in the church either, by the way, right? And oftentimes that's the attitude. This pew has my name on it. I've been here for years. I've been here since I was a kid. I've been here all my life. Who's the riffraff sitting behind me here, right? All signs of self-righteousness, and I'll tell you what, it's the worst kind of sin that there is. It's the worst. And I want to show you an illustration of it in Luke chapter 7. Turn to Luke 7, and we'll read it together. Beginning in verse 36. Jesus is having dinner in this man's house. His name is Simon. This is not Simon Peter. This is Simon who was a Pharisee. Okay? It says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus said, is to eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and he sat down to eat. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet would know who and what manner a woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. Usually these types of dinners that have dignitaries and VIPs and all of that were usually open to public viewing. Okay? So, th I mean, this woman wasn't invited to this party. You get that, right? What she did is she barged in. She had the courage just to roll in. She had the courage to roll in because she knew there was only one there, one person there that could properly deal with her sin. She came in brokenness. Brokenness. So Jesus would have been at a table which is low because he's reclining at a table. And in that day, you didn't sit in chairs like we do. You would sit down, you would lean back, and you would eat. So your feet were behind you. She came, fell at his feet, began to cry over his feet, tears on his feet, washing his feet with her hair, takes this alabaster uh, uh, vial of oil, which was sealed, and you would have to break off the top, very expensive, and poured it out upon him. And she probably purchased it with money that was used from all the tricks she turned as a prostitute, because she was a prostitute. Pharisee starts thinking in his head, if this woman would have done that to him, she would have probably slapped her in the face. He would have slapped her in the face. And then Jesus, the master illustrator in verse 40, says, Jesus answered and said to him, answered his thoughts now, did you get that? Answered him in his thoughts, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. 
And he said to him, You have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, which was a basic form, a basic formality and custom, by the way. Someone comes to your house, you'd wash their feet, have their feet washed by your servant, whoever. Be like me taking your coat if you came to dinner, right? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Very expensive oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, okay, by the way, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. You see, love was the result of being forgiven much. Love was the understanding of knowing that you've been forgiven much. Her response of love being much was a response of understanding she'd been forgiven much, you see. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It wasn't faith in and of itself that saved this woman, do you see? It was the substance of her faith. Everybody has faith in something. But there's only one owner of our faith that can forgive, and that's Jesus. The substance of her faith was Jesus Christ. The only one that can forgive. The only one. A beautiful story right here of someone that was absolutely broken, knowing that she was in desperate need of forgiveness. you understand that? In desperate need of forgiveness. Now, the point here, you can line up the Pharisee, and you can line up the prostitute. And, and you know what the result would be? She realized and understood she needed forgiveness. He did not see that he needed to be forgiven, you see? In his smug, self-righteous attitude, not realizing the sin that was within him, you see? That's why Jesus said, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You're all clean on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. You look religious on the outside, he said to these Pharisees, but you don't realize the problem going on inside. This woman knew the problem going on inside, and she went to the source of saving faith and grace, which was Jesus Christ. She understands she was forgiven much, and the response of knowing that you're forgiven much is that you love much, and the ultimate way to love is to forgive. To forgive. To let bitterness and resentment go. Your ability to forgive is the basis for your ability to love. That's the biblical reality. See, if you see God from the perspective that the world sees him, most of the world sees God as their personal Santa Claus. Would you agree? Amen? He is not your personal Santa Claus. He is no one's personal Santa Claus. If you see God from the biblical perspective, you will see God as defined by Peter. Oh, depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. The Apostle John saw him in his glory in Revelation chapter 1. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Come on now. Isaiah saw him in his glory. He didn't stand there with his hands on his hips saying, i got a few questions for you, Lord. 
I was having a great time of fellowship with a brother of mine, and we were talking about all these people. You know, we were talking about difficult doctrines, like the Trinity, and like the doctrine of election, and things like this. And we were talking about how many people say, you know, when I get to God, I got a couple things to ask him, hands on the hips and so on. You know that? But when Isaiah saw him, his mouth was shut, he fell on his feet, and there's only one thing he could say. He heard the angel saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? There's only one thing he could say, whoa. I am undone. That means to come unraveled at the seams. That's who God is. And when you understand that that God went to the cross for you, sent his son for you, and forgave you, an undeserving, wretched sinner, plural, sinners, us, including myself, sinners, undeserving. Who are you and who am I to say that someone who's done us wrong doesn't deserve forgiveness? Because the love that he has loved us with should produce in us a love of response that says, I love like Christ loves, therefore I forgive you. You see? Biblical love. Is it possible? It's possible. You know why? Because you've been born again of the Spirit of God. You've been regenerated. Before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before Christ, you were born with the nature you were born with, which was a sinful nature that totally separates from you from God. And if you think that you're good enough to get to heaven, you have the mind of the Pharisee and you don't see your need. Very, very dangerous place to be. If you're here today fellowshipping and rejoicing over the finished work of Jesus Christ, yes, you're a Christian, and because you've been forgiven so much, therefore, love much. And to love much is to forgive those who wrong you, to forgive those who've been unkind to you, to forgive those who've done backbiting to you, you see. Because if you don't forgive what they've done to you, you in turn will begin to do what they've been doing to you, backbiting. You see? That's love. That's to love like Christ. You've also been sanctified, which means you've been set what? Apart. Separated from sin. God has set you apart. And he's working his holiness in you so that you and I can work it out. And we work it out through a faithful, obedient life of yieldedness to the Spirit of God to strengthen the inner man so Christ can settle down, be at home, and then the power and the might that you have is beyond comprehension. That's how you're able to forgive those who wronged you. And now I understand that some of you were perhaps hurt as a child, that someone of you were ripped off and hurt by someone close to you. I understand that. And that is painful. You've got to open your heart, and you've got to allow Christ who saved you to give you the capacity in the area in which you can release forgiveness to those individuals because the bitterness and the resentment that you're holding on to, it'll kill you. It'll kill the joy that you'll have from walking in fellowship with Christ, you see? It'll destroy you. God wants to set you free from that. He wants to set you free from it. You've got to let him do it. So basically what Paul has been saying here through Ephesians, if you call yourself a child of God, basically this is what he's been saying. Therefore, in chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy of the calling. The calling is the call to salvation. Therefore, because you've been called, walk worthy of it, you see. And he's, what he's saying is, if you call yourself a child of God, live like it. 
You know, people come to me all the time. He says, you know, so-and-so says they're a Christian, but I've never seen any change in their life whatsoever at all. But they said the prayer. It doesn't matter what comes out your mouth. What comes out of the mouth in professing sin to God, confessing sin to God, yielding to the Lordship of Christ, will produce guaranteed a life that rightly reflects Him. Some more than others. But one who's been saved by God's grace will bear fruit of the Spirit who lives in, right? Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, tenderness, all that, right? Illustration, you know, Alexander the Great, great warrior, king of Macedonia, one of the greatest generals in the history of mankind, conquered then what was much of the civil, known as the civilized world. One day he's going through his ranks of men. And he came to understand that there was one of his soldiers that also shared his name, Alexander. But this Alexander was accused of cowardice acts during battle. Running away, hiding, things like that. So he walks up to him. And Alexander walks up to this young Alexander, the less, and says, Soldier, drop your cowardice or drop your name. Oh. Look, if, if you name the name of Jesus Christ, walk like he walked. You'll never be able to do it in your own strength, ever. You yield to the Spirit of God who indwells you. You let the Word of God wash your mind. You let the Word of God wash your thinking and transform your thinking, submitting yourself and lining yourself up and myself up with the Word of God, putting off anger, mass, malice, and, and hatred and bitterness towards others, and you will be able to throw a covering of love on others, you see. Because it's by his strength and his power. That was the appeal, and now we look at the example. We've basically been talking about the example. But the second point he makes is just that. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, point one. Point two, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Here it is. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling what? Aroma. See, biblical love, you guys, is not emotional love. Biblical love is a verb. It's an action, regardless of how you feel. That's where you look at 1 Corinthians 13, you'll say, love is, and then it gives a definition, many definitions. It also says what love is not. It's not boastful. It's not envy. It does not puff itself up, right? Love suffers long. That's patience. To suffer long, that's patience. It's kind. It's forgiving. We see that right here. It's forgiving. You know, the world always loves to get something out of their situation. The world loves and attempts to get something out of every relationship. As a Christian, we don't need to develop relationships just for something to get, to get something out of it. Amen? Because when you understand that you've been loved so much, forgiven so much, you are enabled to love much. But if you don't see that you have the great need for forgiveness... You got to do a heart check. Because the Pharisee did not see his need for forgiveness, you see. He did not see his need to fall at the feet of Jesus as the woman did. Because he'd been going to church all his life. I'm a good fella. I'm a good guy. I see we get more riffraff in the church. Where are these people coming from? 
That's self-righteousness. That's dangerous. If your love is dissolved for somebody somewhere, it's not their problem, you see. If my love is dissolved for somebody, that's my problem. If your love is dissolved for somebody, a biblical godly love, it's your problem. That means i got to go to God, and I have to confess, and I have to repent and change my thinking so that I can be washed and cleansed from that sin today, you see, and I'll have the strength to move on. In John 13, remember the disciples were arguing just prior to this foot washing that Jesus did for the disciples? They were arguing about what? Who was going to be the greatest Lord when you set up your kingdom, right? John and James, they send their mommy, you know, to see if they can sit on the right and left-hand side of Jesus. Who's going to be the big guys in the kingdom? Jesus bows down, takes off his clothes, wraps a towel around him, he washes their feet. He washes the feet of all twelve, including the feet of Judas Iscariot, who that night would betray him. He had eleven that were saved and one that wasn't. And he washed all their feet. And by the way, later on that night, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, tonight one of you will betray me. As a matter of fact, one of you is the devil. Remember that? The disciples, and I've said this before, they, not all of a sudden did they go, Oh, there's no doubt it's Judas, right? What did they say? Lord? Is it me? Is it me, Lord? Which shows me, and it showed me over time, that Jesus showed the same amount of love to Judas as he did the other eleven. And that dude was a fraud from the beginning, though he looked like the real deal. He looked like the real deal. On the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That act on the cross, those words on the cross, they went up to God the Father as verse 2, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You know, I had Larry read from Leviticus chapter 1 this morning. Because it talked about the sweet-smelling fragrance given up to God through the sacrifice. In Leviticus, chapters 1 through 5, there's five offerings that are discussed. Number one was the burnt offering, which Larry read about this morning. Number two is the meal offering or the grain offering. Number three is the peace offering. All of those were required of Israel as pictures of the once and for all sacrifice that would come. And all three were a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. In Leviticus 4 and 5, there's two other offerings, guys. Two other offerings as we begin to wrap up here. It was the sin offering and the trespass offering. And both of those were a putrid stench. Because God hates sin. He hates the act of trespassing against his divine law. Because both the sin and the trespass offerings were not characteristic of Christ, were they? No, but he stood in your place as that sacrifice, as the sin offering, as the trespass offering. So, it doesn't suggest that God is pleased that sin demands death. But what pleases God is that the, the death of Christ satisfies God's wrath and hate for sin. And if God hates sin, 
you got to understand, which he does, he is a God of wrath. Wrath in the Old Testament, wrath in the New Testament, because there's no greater wrath of God that's ever been seen in history than his wrath, which was poured out upon his Son so that you can be cleansed and that you can be covered and that you can be forgiven. That's his wrath. The ultimate act of wrath was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's what satisfies God. That's the sweet-smelling savor that goes up to the nostrils of God. The ultimate sacrifice of Jesus who forgives you. You'll never stand in judgment for your sin, believers. Never, ever will you stand and be judged for your sin because all of your sins were judged at the cross by Christ. So, if you've been forgiven that much, which is a great amount, can we not forgive one another? Must we forgive one another? Mustn't we get rid of our bitterness? Mustn't we get rid of our wrath? Mustn't we get rid of our envy and jealousy of one another? Right? The context of Ephesians 4 is that we are members of one another, a body, you see, a temple. All members of one another. That's what he's saying. You want to imitate God? Imitate his love. Know how much you've been forgiven and forgive like that. Remember how we talked about being tender-hearted? In verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. The question is, and I'll ask you this, are you tender about the price that Christ paid for you? Are you tender in moments in which you fall into certain sins that grieve the heart of God? Are you tender about that? Hopefully. If you are, that's a great, great, great sign, you see. Are you callous? Oh, there's people way worse than me. Way worse. When people sin against you, is your attitude, they don't deserve it. Because if it is, stop and remember that you don't deserve the forgiveness of God, but he granted it to you anyhow. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You want to love like Christ? Forgive like Christ. And then, all the sin that's hidden that we don't see in our hearts, the envy, the jealousy, the bitterness, and all that, will be resolved so that Christ can settle down on us and be at home. And then the love that we say we have, we will really have. And it won't be just lip service. Amen? And then you'll have a health, healthy, functioning body, which rightly reflects the love of Christ that's been provided for us. And we, in return, love much. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we don't even need to pray for your love because your word says that the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. But Father, I do pray and ask that you would certainly help us to see the areas in which our own hearts and our own lives that we're holding on to resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness. To understand the depth of love that you have for us. To understand that our sins being forgiven were totally, we are totally undeserving of that. But like the women who, the woman who bowed down at your feet, washed your feet with her tears, poured oil over your head, Lord, may that be our response on a day-by-day -day basis to simply live out a loving response to all the love that's been provided for us and walk in a manner that rightly reflects our Savior our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. As your heads are bowed today, if you know you're not a believer, 
you know that all of the sin that has ever been released to your mind, out of your mind, out of your body, through habits, through thinking, through words, there's nothing you can do to get it back. There's nothing you can do to get better. There's nothing you can do to find favor in the sight of God. That's bad news, and that's why gospel means good news. And the good news is what we read today. Jesus provided the sacrifice. He was himself. God the Father provided the sacrifice. His Son. And that sacrifice was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father. It totally appeased and totally satisfies the wrath of God. Don't walk out today having to stand in judgment before God, but my prayer is that the Word has infected your heart today. It will bring you to a point of repentance, which means to have a change of mind, to have a change of thinking, to call on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Tell Him. And then go home and live it out. And join fellowship. And get fed the Word of God week after week, and you will see your life change. Not by me and not by anyone here, but by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. It's His Word transforms your life. So call on Him today. Tell Him you know you're a sinner, you're wretched, you can't pay, but you know He did. And ask Him. Tell Him you give Him permission to take over your life. And then submit to Him. Father, I pray for anyone who doesn't know you today that that would be the case, that they would simply submit their lives to you. And that every believer in here would yield themselves more and more, including myself, to you, to the work of your spirit, so Jesus, you can settle down and be at home, and that the love we have for others will be a simple reflection of the love you have for us. I pray in Jesus' name.